Happy Monday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I'm Charlie Sykes. Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. A lot of ground to cover. My newsletter today focuses on Donald Trump's rally in the desert in, in Arizona. And, and you know, even when I say that, I'm kind of like, that was a boring thing to write about, which is what I wrote about, is that, you know, you, you get a, you know, a glimpse of what the future of the Republican Party is going to be, which is sort of the endless loop of Donald Trump's grievances. He's a guy that really doesn't even pretend to have an agenda anymore, doesn't talk about issues anymore. It's all like, hey, what you need to do for me, um, and let's talk about this election and bring up uh, my pillow guy. And and the craziest people in American politics somehow seem to have ended up in Arizona. And of course, they end up on the MAGA stage with the president. And, and I, 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 I don't always agree with Matt Lewis, but I, I think he's right when he says that there's kind of a jump the shark um, feeling about all of this. It's like the rock band that has played the hits so many times that you go, OK, I recognize the tune and it may be mildly entertaining, but it's on that edge of being really sort of boring to be doing the same thing over and over and over again. So I apologize for writing about something that you go, come on, can we just move on? And I'm not saying that America is about to move on from Donald Trump. I'm also uh, very interested in the whole uh, spat between uh, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. You know, all you folks out there were saying, you know, you never Trumpers need to get on board with Ron DeSantis. He's the one you've been waiting for. To which I think my response back in November was, nope, 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 and nobody nope. Uh, it is not going to be Ron DeSantis. And now DeSantis is actually moving to be more, more Trumpy, more, more deplorable than Donald Trump. He's trying to get to the right of him on the pandemic. So we have so much stuff to talk about. And so we are joined today uh, for the first time by uh, Josh Barrow, who's the author of a new newsletter on Substack called Very Serious and the host of the Very Serious podcast. Uh, first of all, happy Monday. Happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day, Josh. Appreciate you Thank coming you, Charlie. On. Thank you for having me here. So this, this DeSantis thing, you, you know what's slightly depressing about it? is that DeSantis may not be wrong in calculating that, hey, here's my vulnerability. Donald Trump has actually now come out in favor of vaccines. If I take the more reckless, the more reckless anti-vax lane, I actually might score some points given what's happened to the Republican electorate. He might not be wrong, right? Well, I mean, it's it's like any race with a front runner, right? You have to have some story about why you're different than the front runner. Um, and the story that you can tell in a Republican primary is not the normal, the story that you would tell to the general electorate about how you're different from Donald Trump. Like, I'm not a crazy person. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not too erratic to be president, those sorts of things. You have to come up with something that is different and that is potentially appealing to this group of people. I mean, it's like, I, I feel like there were a lot of second and third tier races that we would see around the country on the Democratic side for governor or Congress or that sort of thing. And you have a front runner and then some other Democrat would have to like try to act like Bernie Sanders in order to be different. And I think it was not, it, it didn't usually work. Um, and it often didn't seem super genuine, but it was literally like, you know, if I don't do that, then I've offered no case about why me rather than this other person. So DeSantis, if he's preparing to run against Donald Trump. There has to be some story about why not him, why me instead. And I think the one that he's, that, that he's settling on, if he's keeping the option open to have that race against Trump, is is what you're describing here is basically saying well you know Trump was you know was what really was not uh, conservative is not the right word but that he was not far enough to the right on this issue that he was you know the, the that he was too uh, supportive of too many sort of 
lockdown measures. Now, I don't. I mean, I, I think to some extent the press is is overstating the mm-hmm. extent of the, the distance that the the two of them have obtained from each other on mm-hmm. on policy. But I think that's what you're starting to see groundwork for. If there's going to be a campaign, there has to be some sort of story about why he's different. And I think that's going to be part right. of the story. Yeah, I mean, the, the real tension is, is perhaps not policy. Maybe the policy, you know, follows what the the, the real gap is, which is sort of ego. The fact that uh, Ron DeSantis has not, right. you know, bowed the knee, kissed the ring, and, and told Donald Trump that that he will not run against his fellow Floridian. Trump is clearly annoyed by all of that. But it is interesting that uh, that DeSantis has been meeting with these conservative influencers. He's been sucking up to these certain, you know, uh, people on in the, in the right wing media and, and making some progress. But you said something that uh, is kind of surprising. Do you actually think that Ron DeSantis would run against Donald Trump? I've always been assuming that Ron DeSantis, like every other Republican, is going to go, yeah, I, I can't beat him on a primary. But you think he might actually do that? Because I that, think he, that upends everything. I think he would do it if he thought yeah. he had a shot to win. I don't I don't know whether he will. Yeah. I think he wants to keep ass. the option open. Yeah. Um, and and I think he, the, you know, politics is littered with people who should have run for president four years earlier. Chris Christie should have run for president in 2012. Yeah. I think people Joe want Biden. to... Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, Joe Biden should have run in 2016. Mm-hmm. I think people want to... I, I think people who desperately want to be president if they are being smart about it. They they have a strategy where they're trying to figure out, can I run in this cycle? And if so, how? So I, I, I don't know that he necessarily would uh, make a campaign against Trump. And, and I also, I don't know that Trump is actually going to run again. I think he certainly very well might. And he also seems to be keeping the option open. But I think... You, we, we don't know how strong politically any person will be a year, a year and a half from now. And so I think DeSantis wants to keep that option open in case he does see a path to win. I mean, the, the, the other weird thing mm-hmm. is you would think if you were trying to run a Republican campaign against Trump, you would you would do the thing that you do anytime someone who lost the last election tried to run again, which is to say, you know, he tried that and he lost and I'm going to do something different and I won't lose this time. And obviously Trump has created this al- alternate reality in which it's difficult to say that he lost because he will insist, you know, I didn't win. They stole it from me. I would think that the thing to say in Ron DeSantis's position is sort of you can you can almost bracket the 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 big lie stuff. You can say, well, it doesn't really matter how you didn't get it, but you didn't get it. You're not president anymore. The Democrats took it away from you one way or another. And whether that's you lost the election or they stole the election from you, either that reflects that you did not manage to retain the presidency and you failed. And that could go obviously in certain dangerous directions. But I'm 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 sort of surprised you don't hear that line more from some people to the right, that, you know, if, if Trump was so powerful and he fights so much and he's so clever, then how did some, like, motley conspiracy of Democratic election administrators take the election from him? It should be... Oh, I see If you take his saying. story yeah, at face right, value, it should be Right, right. Even, even if you accept the big lie, um, you know, yeah. and I won't let them steal it from me. Right. Well, like, I want to get into all of he this. He was president I, of the United States. Yeah, like it's, he should have the had the power to be, you know... That, that he lost to like various secretaries of state around the country when you know that he theoretically was was in the right and really got more votes. It's a, if the story was true, it would be kind of sad and pathetic. Well, I keep waiting for what exactly his plan for making America great again is. It, 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 he, look, he's never been a policy guy, I, and and I think that's one of the you know, the key thing when we talk about Trumpism. The Trumpism yeah. is not a series of policies, but you could have talked yourself into it maybe in 2015, 2016. and now it's basically all the you know you know I what was done to me, I am a victim, all of that that sort of thing. Now I was thinking you know today what it would take to make America great again. You know, you know what I would be satisfied with? I'd What's be satisfied that? with having a special dedicated camera that would just focus on Jerry Jones at the end of <laughs> Dallas 
cowboy <laughs> playoff game. I craved that so much. I wanted to see. I mean, didn't you? Did you watch that game? I wanted to see Jerry Jones. I'm sorry. I got to think about this. I wanted well, to see Jerry that? Jones at the very end of that game, you know, when they're you know doing the, you know, the inches and then the, the penalties and everything. And then to watch your team lose because the the ref doesn't get out of the way. They're, you're at home <laughs> in the playoffs. You know, Tony Romo is doing the, you know, the future is now. And there you're Jerry freaking Jones. And you're watching this in your home stadium. And come on, you have to have a dedicated camera for that. Right. You just wanted, wanted to see the pain on his face? I did. I did. <laughs> okay, that tells you a little bit about the kind of person I am, but yeah. I, I would have I liked to have seen that. So I, I'm sorry, you're not a Dallas Cowboy fan, are you? I'm not a Dallas Cowboys fan. But that's, I mean, that's at least a small achievable promise, right? I know. Like, I, you know I'm, that's, I'm going that's small these that, days. I don't know that the president could do that, but someone could definitely do that. Like, there's a lot of things that get promised in political campaigns that are implausible. That's that's something you could have. Was, was there a camera that was dedicated to Bill Belichick? <laughs> Well, I mean, the th- weekend, I mean, I would also have liked to have seen that a lot. The problem is that Bill Belichick looks like he's in pain, even when he's when something yeah. objectively good is happening to him. So you sort of you you can look at Bill Belichick and he looks miserable, but that doesn't actually tell you anything about what is happening in the moment. See, I'm I'm, I'm thinking that by the end of that fourth quarter, he was looking like the Emperor Palpatine. I mean, he was just thinking, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he looks like that every day. He <laughs> looks like, but, but he looks like that when they it. win. <laughs> I could have, but I but I could have enjoyed it some more. So yeah. I, I want to go ahead and talk, talk about your newsletter. Um, this is yeah. very serious. The, the newsletter and, and and the podcast. And one of the things that that I wanted to ask you about was your very first piece. Yes, you said you write for people you disagree with, which I thought was interesting. Now you say you're not trying to be a contrarian, but you are. And I follow you on social media. You, you yeah. There's you you do some pushback. So who? Yeah. You're you're not like a contrarian in general, but you are a contrarian to certain mainstream media voices, tendencies, knee-jerk responses. So talk to yeah. me about that. Well, I mean, one thing I say in that piece is that, you know, what what people talk about is a national conversation. And it's this is not the entirety of the media. I'm not talking about local TV news. I'm not talking about Fox. But, like, the, you know, certain prestige national outlets, the New York Times and NPR, and then web-first outlets that are national, like Vox. It's it's basically a conversation by and for people who voted for Elizabeth Warren. So not it's not <laughs> merely that it's for Democrats. It's for a subset of the Democratic Party that lost the primary. Um, and, and it's I also, laughed out loud when I read that, that the, the, the national conversation we talk about is by yeah. and for people who supported Elizabeth Warren. So it, it's diverse. It's a diverse group of exactly. various people who all supported Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. It's black people who voted for Elizabeth Warren and Hispanic people who voted for Elizabeth Warren. It's, yeah. it's crazy. I mean, when you would, would watch cable news during the 2020 primary, how often did you see a black Biden supporter who was not an elected official? I mean, you definitely had elected officials who were for Biden. Jim Clyburn would be on TV and that sort of thing. But it was like it was easier to find a black Republican talking head on CNN than a black voter in the mainstream of the actual you know black electorate in the Democratic Party, which overwhelmingly supported Joe Biden. And it's not specifically black voters that you have that unrepresentativeness for. It's all sorts of demographics where you're really seeing the in ways that that make sense. You know, people in the media are almost by definition have bachelor's degrees. Um, they are on average significantly younger than the average voter. And if you like, if you if you filtered the electorate that way, you would get a less Biden-friendly electorate than the one that actually existed. But then people would sort of make the mistake and sort of assume that the people in the media from some demographic group are, are representative of who's in the electorate from that demographic group. 
group. And it just gives you this wildly incorrect picture. It was part of why Joe Biden was so consistently underestimated through that whole primary, because voters didn't personally know anybody who was supporting Biden in that primary. They, as I say, they were all for Warren, but they sort of, they, they could, they could imagine like who the Klobuchar voter is and who the Bernie voter is and who the Pete voter is. But it was like this whole missing part of, part of the electorate. And so, and and then more broadly, obviously, that also that puts them to the left of the Democratic Party, and then especially to the electorate as a whole. And so, you know, I'm I, I'm not a normal person. I'm not an average voter, but my policy preferences are closer to the median than most other people who are writing in the media. And so, now that I'm a Democrat, I've been a Democrat since 2016. Um, I'm sort of when I interface with other people who are broadly in the Democratic Party coalition. Yes, I'm having a lot of arguments with them on Twitter and in my writing, but uh, there's there's two things behind that. One is, you know, I'm I'm more normal than they are, even though I'm not normal. Um, and I also, as someone who would like the Democrats not to get the, their clock cleaned in this upcoming midterm, which is what we are heading for, um, I think that the, a lot of the people who are having that conversation, because it's not just the media, it's also the sort of people who work at the staff level in the White House, in Congress, in these campaigns, to help them actually understand that, I mean, th- this nonsense that we've gone through in the last three weeks with trying when you are obviously going to fail to pass this voting legislation that would not actually have that large an effect on how elections are conducted and does almost nothing about the specific problems about Donald Trump trying to steal the last election and what he might try to do in the next election. It's both, it it does not serve an actually useful policy purpose and it is completely embarrassing politically um, and harmful to your political interests. And one of the things about the bubble that these people are in is that they don't see any of that. And so I'm trying to grab them by the shoulders and explain that. Well, well, then we're aligned a little bit here. And because this is extremely difficult to say, okay, do you understand why if you do A, B, and C, how it will play over here? And then, you know, don't don't inundate my timeline now with with rationalizations why this really crazy idea is not going to destroy you. But, you know, as you point out that, you know, having this national conversation, you know, by and for people by, you know, supported by Elizabeth Warren, does explain where we're at here because it really does badly mislead you about where normal people, the average voter, what they think about, they believe, what they care about, what motivates them, and about what the Democrats need to do. So, okay, let's talk about specifically, because you've been in some very interesting back and forth over this question of saving democracy. Right. And I'm I'm an MSNBC contributor, and I would, it feels on some days like 60% of the entire broadcast content is saving democracy without necessarily a lot of specificity about what that means. So you're saying that obsessing about saving democracy won't save democracy. And and, yeah. and 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 you question whether or not the Democrats are making a mistake by foregrounding the issue of January 6th politically. Again, talk to me about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, and, and this is clear in the sort of polling that tries to actually figure out what people care about. Rather, I mean, if you ask people about January 6th, it was, it was bad. And of course, I, you know, the, I, I was distressed by what I was seeing on television that day. It's not that voters thought that what happened there is a good thing by and large. It's just not top of mind for people, especially the sort of people who are marginal voters. They are concerned about, I can't find the stuff that I want at the store. Inflation is high and it means my real income is falling. Um, things were supposed to be back to normal now and they're not. And I'm still concerned about getting COVID and my kid's school might have an unreliable schedule. Um, you can find a job. People are not, the, that's not a part of the, the, the overall distress. But maybe if they're trying to employ people, they can't find people to work. They're bothered by that. Or they see all of the disruption at the places where they do business because of the labor shortage. So I think, you know, that's that's the stuff that's really top of mind. And so when you're not talking about that, 
whether it's the January 6th stuff or it's the Build Back Better bill, which again is this sort of the solution that is not really aimed at the problem that most people care about right now. Uh, you're basically showing that you're not focused on, on what voters are focused on. And then when people talk in these very grand terms about saving democracy, I, th I think that they would benefit from being a little more specific about exactly what they think the problem is and what the, they think the thing that they're trying to do would actually do to solve the problem. I mean, more ballot drop boxes in Fulton County, Georgia, uh, not only is very unlikely to have impacts on electoral outcomes, and Nate Cohn did a very good roundup of this at the New York Times last April about how the, the things that we've had these obsessive fights over for years about how many days of early voting there should be and whether you should be able to vote by mail or not, it has really trivial effects on actual voting outcomes. It doesn't change that much who, who, who votes and how, how likely different kinds of people are to vote. So that's not going to save democracy for you. It's not like there's an underlying majority of voters that is there for Democrats, that if only you had the right set of voting rules, they would show up and Democrats would win and they wouldn't have to worry about fighting with Donald Trump anymore. But I think that's the way, the way a lot of Democrats think about this issue. Then there's a second set of saving democracy things that has to do not with voting, but with the counting of the votes. Um, and basically, you know, what happens if some state legislature tries to send the wrong set of votes electors to Washington, or there's some other effort to usurp the vote once it's actually counted. I think those are concerns. Um, there's very little in this legislation they're arguing over that would actually yes. do anything about that. And some of that is hard. I mean, I, I, there's this law called the Electoral Count Act that right. people may right. have started hearing about that's like 130 years old and that creates the thing where, you know, it's the rule that it's, it's not very well defined in terms of like what exactly is the vice president's role there. No, and it's, what a, is it's a legal clusterfuck. I mean, it's right. there, yeah. yeah. And so that could be cleaned up a little bit, and I, and I support doing that, and there's some bipartisan interest in doing that. But the problem is that really you're relying on the courts there. You're relying on the courts now, and you will be relying on the courts under some future interpretation if one of the various parties that's supposed to participate in that process in good faith doesn't and tries to screw up the vote count. And so we can't really know how effective the courts are going to be in stopping that until there's some crisis where they are, actually have to be involved. And most likely there won't be one because the next election probably won't be close enough to have those sorts of shenanigans. But if there is, I mean, we saw the way the courts behaved in 2020 and the courts were mostly very good. They very did the good, right yeah. things. They threw out the ridiculous challenges because they were ridiculous. And so I think probably it is the courts that will save us if we have one of those efforts in 2024. But we can't really know that until it happens. And we can only do a little bit to improve the laws to improve that likelihood. So explain to me what happened in terms of tactics over the last uh, two or three weeks. Um, obviously, the, the the big setback for the Biden administration was, um, you know, build back better. You know, right. they, they they crammed everything into this bill. Um, all of those hopes were that it was they were going to get Joe Manchin on board. He pulls the plug before the end of the year. That was a disaster. So then they decided that they were going to pivot to voting rights which you would normally think that you've had a failure. Let's pivot to something where we think we're going to succeed. They put all of their prestige on the line. The president and the vice president going down to Georgia, deliver the speech, which got very mixed reviews. And within 24 hours, that had also imploded. So can, can you see what, what is going on in terms of the administration's tactics? Because I guess I had had the feeling that they were pretty, they might be pretty good at this early on. And right now, they look really bad at this. Yeah, I don't, I don't get it at all. I find okay. it really strange because, I'm, as you know, like, yeah, you would think you'd pivot to something you can win on. They did right. not have the votes 
on the voting rights stuff because you need 60 votes to move this through the Senate. There's not 60 votes for this legislation, and there aren't 50 votes to do some sort of thing where you again blow up part of the Senate rules uh, and allow things to move through a, a process where you don't need 60, where you only need 50 plus the vice president. So it was not going to work, and Joe Manchin had been very clear about that he was opposed to this, and I, I really... I, I was baffled when they announced that they were going to do this because it, it was obvious that it was going to end this way. Yeah. And so there's sort of there's two theories of, of what they thought they were up to. One is that they genuinely believed that this like round of public pressure would change Mansion and Cinema's mind either mm. by intimidating them or by persuading them or something, which like if you th- if you thought that you were dumb. So I don't yes. really and I don't think the people in the White House are dumb. So I'm really surprised by that. The other is basically that like they knew that this was going to fail, but they needed to be seen trying. So by some service. constituency. Yeah, okay. All right. And people, you know, people will talk about that as, you know, well, well, black voters really needed to see this. I would like to see the opinion research underlying that. I want to see your focus group or your crosstabs where where you found that what black voters really needed to see for the midterms was Joe Biden try and fail to pass this legislation. I mean, uh, you know, the my understanding is basically you look at any of those polls, you look at any subgroup, and you find the economy is the number one issue for for everyone. Um, and obviously, different people want different things on the economy. But I, I, I don't buy this claim that basically this was was needed as you know a, a, as service to a key part of the political base, especially because it failed. Like it would make more sense to me if you said you know black voters really care about these these pieces of voting legislation, therefore you need to pass them in order to show them that you did something useful. Like if you could pass it then it would make more sense to me to say, you know, here, there's a constituency who really cares about this, so you should do it. But again, we're not talking about passing it. We're talking about, theoretically, there's a constituency that really cares to see you try and fail because at least you tried. I just, I just don't, I, I don't buy that. What I think is more plausible is that there's a constituency of political donors uh, and activists who really care about seeing them try and, and, and even if they fail to show that, you know, the part of the agenda that they supported, that they really threw everything at it. And you, and you had Chuck Schumer on a call with Democratic donors associated with like Democracy Alliance and Way to Win and various other groups in the middle of last week at the same time that they were doing this failed effort. And I think, th- I think that's the more plausible story. That's that the there key. are voices yes. right. that Democrats are hearing Every day, the sorts of the, the activist and donor class that they're dealing with, that they that those people really do have a, a misapprehension about that. You know, if you just yell racist at Joe Manchin enough times, he'll change his mind. Um, so I think that's maybe who they were trying to impress, which is again a really dumb way to allocate your resources. But they did something really dumb. So whatever the explanation is for what they did, it has to be a dumb explanation. So what you're arguing here is is that Democrats they need to convince the voters of of, of obviously of the importance of elections. Um, yeah. And and the way and the way to do that is to do what they promised to do: uh, shut yeah. down the virus, open the economy, return life to normal. Now, yeah, and shake, which is hard. Well, it is hard. So I mean, let's talk about this. Yeah. I mean, you know, Delta and Omicron, obviously, you know, big setbacks impaired the administration's approach, um, which which yeah. focused on the vaccines, yeah. stronger consumer demand with the supply problems, fueled inflation and shortages. So obviously, they need to make some policy shifts. W- what should they be doing right now? I mean, the, the, what's hard about it is that it's, a lot of it is small things, and a lot of yeah. it is, you know, the, the, the president has some influence over these outcomes, but does, uh, certainly, obviously does not control whether the virus mutates, although, and, and, I, and on a global scale, the president can't even do that much to influence the ability of the global infection rate that, that supports the creation of new, of new variants. And then on the economic side, there are a bunch of underlying fundamental reasons that we have these difficulties, and also the 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 fiscal policies that we had that supported people's income, especially through the last year and the first half of, or the, through 2020 and the first half of 2021, 
they were successful in building up household balance sheets, that's also been inflationary and that's water under the bridge. I don't think fiscal policy is really inflationary now, but it was that the money has been injected out there and it's supporting the inflation. But I mean, there's a bill called the United States Innovation and Competition Act that's passed the Senate that's waiting in the House for some reason. For months, they've not acted on it. It's the, the, it includes parts of what used to be called the Endless Frontier Act and there's investments in science, various things. But one thing in there is a lot of investment in domestic semiconductor production. Hmm. Um, and so I think that would be, you know, can you can you get that out of the House? It's already passed the Senate and sign this bill and say, I'm going to get more semiconductors made here so that we don't have disp- supply chain disruptions like this in the future. And so we can make more cars. So it's not so expensive for you to buy a car again. The car stuff is the one part of the global supply chain where it's really a supply side problem and not a demand side problem. We just can't make as many cars as we're supposed to be able to make. So I think that, you know, that's one concrete piece of policy the president can do to show that he's trying to push prices down there. Um, There are some Trump-era tariffs that are still in effect um, that I don't think Democrats thought were good policy at the time. Those raise consumer prices by making it more expensive to import things. Maybe we could finally get a settlement with the Canadians on this Mm decades-long softwood lumber dispute that we have where we slap these tariffs on on Canadian wood when it comes into the country. It's one of many things that are driving up construction costs and making it more expensive when people try to do work on their homes. But I think, you know, broadly... Why one of the main reasons that we've had this inflation is that households have they, they have they have good spending capacity, but their whole categories of things that they're not spending on right now, either because they're unavailable or they're undesirable. People don't want to take vacations abroad because you have to take a COVID test to get back into the country. And if it's positive, you're going to get stuck in England or wherever you are for an extra 10 days, um, which is not compatible with a lot of people's work or family obligations. Budgets. Um, and so, but they, but they have the money. They have the money that they might have spent on that trip. So they try to buy a new television or they try to do work on their home. And you have excess demand in these categories because of the suppressed demand in other categories. And that's one of the main things that's inflationary. And so one thing that I think the president could do on that is it's, you know, it's disproportionately Democrats who are still living extra disrupted lives, who are way farther away from their pre-pandemic normal behavior than Republicans are. Hmm. And so to the extent that you convince some of those people that they should be, you know, especially especially a month from now when the Omicron wave has, has, has really faded, if you can convince those people that they really ought to be going to restaurants, going to the theater, taking trips even domestically if they can't leave the country, finding ways to spend their money on services, and also commuting to the office, because that's another key area of spending that's gone down. People are, you know, the, because they're, they have less commuting time and expense, that frees up money and time for the purchase of other things that then creates demand strains on those other things. If you can convince more of those people to go back to normal in the way that that the governor and the mayor in New York, where I live, have been very adamant about, you know, we need people back in Manhattan, back in the office, back in restaurants, like the governor of Colorado, who's a Democrat. If you can get people to spend their money that way, you can actually relieve some of the pressure on some of these goods categories, which is, you know, the everyone knows about the mess at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. Those ports are moving more goods than ever. The problem is not that their capacity is lower than normal. It's that there's so much higher demand for all this imported stuff. Part of that demand comes from the fact that people aren't buying the services they usually buy, so they have money to spend on the goods. If you, if you can get people to spend, to go back to their normal service consumption behavior, yeah. that should actually relieve some of the inflation pressure if you can talk people into doing it. What about living with the pandemic? You know, you've written about this. Um, yeah. They, they look, they need to get more tests. They need to get more pharmaceuticals out in the country. This does seem to be kind of a policy botch on the part of the administration that uh, they should they should have gotten these these free tests out earlier. And even yeah. the rollout now where you have to wait till what the 19th to then go online and order a free test, which then will take seven to 10 days to be delivered. Um, 
I mean, obviously testing is crucial. They, they may be headed in the right direction, but how did they botch that? How, how did they well, not get that right? Well, the, the, they got it wrong in a couple of ways. I mean, I think the botch comes earlier where you had the FDA being too reluctant to approve enough tests. Um, and that's not a, a Biden-specific problem. I think we've seen that the FDA is just overly cautious in a number of directions, not very good at operating with whatever limited information is available and trying to make the best decision. Um, instead, having a standard like they they have when you're developing a new drug for like a for a very ongoing issue, where you sort of you wait and you wait and you look for the very best thing. Whereas for tests, you know, the we needed tests that were pretty good. That was better than people not having a test at all. Um, and many more of these tests are, are proved and available on the market in Europe than in the United States. I don't think that, that Europe has you know, an overly lax drug and medical device review process where you have a lot of terrible products available in these other wealthy countries in Europe. So if they'd approved more of these tests, there would have been more production capacity in the United States over the, over the last year. Um, but they, they didn't have those approvals in place. And then I think in the, in the summer... The position of the administration was basically that we are all in on vaccination as a strategy to to stop the yeah. the pandemic, and that if you spent on other things, that they, there there was actually the, people have spent way too much time with these psychological concerns about like oh well if we do this then maybe people won't do the other thing that we said if we if we make lots of tests available people might conclude that they don't need a vaccine because they can just test their way around this and I think that was really that they were being way too clever and thinking like that. Like really, you just want to, you, you want to flood the zone with all of the, the various interventions that are available and not worry that that's going to have some second order psychological effect on people. You have to worry about the first order effect first. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, that was a decision that was made months ago. And then it left us in this position where suddenly we wanted way more tests. Partly, I, Matt Iglesias is very big on pointing out, you know, he's in favor, he's like, I like tests, but like England has lots of tests and sort of the the Omicron wave sort of looks similar in, in England as it did in the US. So it, it, it wasn't clear hmm. that the tests were doing a lot to actually prevent infections. I think it's more that the tests are important for institutions to be able to operate normally in the environment of the infections. You have a lot of schools sending kids home for long quarantines where if you had better testing available, there would be more implementation of policies like test to stay where you don't you don't isolate a child who hasn't had an exposure, you give them a test, and then a couple of days later you give them another test, and they can stay in school. That's obviously a better approach, but you need the tests available in order to be able to do that. So you you mentioned a Colorado governor, uh, Jared Polis, who's taking kind yeah. of a middle middle of the road approach about living with the virus. Yeah. Uh, what is his formula? Well, so what he says is, you know, the emergency phase of COVID is is not only over, it's been over for almost a year, that, you know, COVID is still a, a large problem that we need to combat. But once we made these tools available to individuals to protect themselves, it could no longer be treated as, a, as an emergency. It had to be treated as a condition that we are living with and that our economy is, is operating through. And so he's been very focused on making sure that they're not going to have reversions to closures of things. Uh, there's no statewide mask mandate in Colorado that in, in the way that various other governors, including the, the governor here in New York, has imposed one. But he uh, it, he's not Ron DeSantis either. He's, you know, he's been very consistently in favor of vaccination, Local authorities are allowed to order masks in places where they think it's appropriate so you can get de decisions in different parts of the state that match either the actual virus conditions or the, po the policy preferences of the people there. So he's been basically, you know, we're, we're going to take this seriously and fight this, but we're also, we're open and we're going to be open. And, you know, ski season has started in Colorado and he wants people to travel there and, and support the state's economy and that sort of thing. 
and his numbers are quite good. His numbers in, in Colorado are much better than Joe Biden's numbers in Colorado. Colorado and Virginia have had sort of a similar political trajectory over the last 20 years, both, you know, formerly light red states that have turned pretty solidly blue. Obviously, Virginia has had a reversion to Republicans. I don't think a lot of people are concerned that Democrats are about to lose power in Colorado uh, when the elections come up later this year. And I think I think he's a part of that. I think that, the, you know, he's been he's been focused on making sure that that we do things as normally as we can during the pandemic. In Virginia, one of the key problems for Democrats was that Virginia had some of the longest school closures in the country. That was obviously very unpopular. And he's been, he's been more focused on making sure that the kids are in person in school. Okay. So let's, let's step back for a moment. I want to play for you a clip from Trump's Arizona rally, which of course I mentioned was, you know, jumping the shark, but it was interesting to me. There's a couple of interesting things about about the the, the soundbite I want to play for you. Uh, Number one is He's focusing on the pandemic. This does relate to the pandemic. And it's about as naked a racial identity appeal as I've heard him make. But there's a couple of different aspects to this story. This is, again, um, from the Arizona rally. Donald Trump is talking about the way in which the policies in places like New York um, discriminate against white people. Let's play that. Just denigrating white people to determine who lives and who dies. If you're white, you don't get the vaccine, or if you're white, you don't get therapeutics. It's unbelievable to think this. And nobody wants this. Black people don't want it. White people don't want it. Nobody wants it. It's not even believable. You saw this a week ago where it came out. Nobody can even believe it. They don't even talk about it, and they don't want to talk about it because they know It doesn't work very well for them. But the Wall Street Journal described the practice race-based preferential COVID treatment. So that's what it is. You get it based on race. In fact, in New York State, if you're white, you have to go to the back of the line to get medical help. Think of it. If you're white, you go right to the back of the line. Okay, there's a lot going on there, Josh, Mm -hmm. including the, the white identity politics, the whites as victims. But what's also interesting is that headline that he read from the Wall Street Journal mm-hmm. is an article written by John Judas and Rui Teixeira, who are Democrats, yep. who are basically saying, OK, you guys here in New York, you understand that if you kind of have these preferential guidelines, it's going to be exploited by Republicans and three, two, one, there it is. So, mm-hmm. again, th- this is the increasingly raw racial appeal of people like Donald Trump, but Democrats occasionally give them feed it. What was, what was your take on that whole story? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, although in, in this point, when you say Democrats, I, I think it's actually the, it's, it's a slightly different problem that you have operating here, whereas uh, the, the thing Trump is describing is a real public policy. I mean, I think that the terms in which he is he's placing it are both oversimplified and, and, uh, and, um, and, and are uh, inflammatory. Uh, but it is true that New York and a handful of other states have had these uh, these guidelines for the administration of the relatively scarce pharmaceuticals that, that we have, the the, um, the new Pfizer drug called Paxlovid yeah. that, is a, that appears to be very effective at preventing mild COVID from progressing to, to serious COVID and death. Um, and the one of the, th- there, there are three monoclonal anti- antibody drugs that are in, in wide circulation, but two of them don't work on Omicron. So the third one, which is in somewhat short supply. So there are guidelines about who do you give these to? And there's basically, it's it's a scoring system where you, 
for age and various other underlying conditions, you get some number of points. And New York and a few other states have included uh, race or ethnicity as one of the scoring items in that rubric. And so it, it is literally true uh, that if you have a patient who is otherwise the same, same age, same conditions, same weight, that sort of thing, uh, but one of them is white and one of them is black, it is it is true that the in, under the New York formula, the, the black patient is preferred to receive those drugs. And the justification for this um, is that that black and Hispanic patients especially have do have worse COVID outcomes uh, than white patients uh, with you know certain similar characteristics, and I've seen you know differing research in terms of you know well if you it, it, it's it basically that's capturing that there are certain you know there are other health inequities that lie under there that are socially created. Um, if you can actually measure those underlying issues, does does race actually tell you anything anymore? Um, so there is a you know there's a theoretical medical case for why you would you would look at a population yeah. and say it's more important that we give this to the black patients because they are more likely to die if we don't, and that's what underlies this. On the other hand, you know I think people are reasonably concerned when you have a public policy that literally looks at people's race and then says we're going to to allocate this life saving drug based on race. There are good reasons that that rubs people the wrong way. But I when I, when you say it's Democrats doing this, it's really it's bureaucrats in the state health departments who are doing this. They are looking both at, you know, the, they're looking at academic research and they're operating within an environment uh, that definitely has adopted various, you know, the, the, the diversity, equity, and inclusion ideas that, are, that have underlying ideology that is quite far to the left, but that doesn't really feel like an ideological discussion anymore. It just feels like this is what people, the, the way people in the academic discipline are thinking now. Um, and so I think to some extent, they're not really processing how it is a political decision when right. it will have ramifications like this. And that, and, and Trump is also right that this, that this will be unpopular. So I think that I, I think it is a mistake for these states to have gone in this direction. But I don't think it's really a decision that was necessarily made by politicians. I don't think the, the, either the bureaucrats or the politicians necessarily processed the political ramification of what they were doing here. Um, I believe at least Minnesota has moved away from this after originally announcing it. So I think I, I, I think it's true that it's handing sure. some, him something for backlash, but it's not it's not like it's not like Governor Hochul is the person who handed it to him. It's someone no, in, right. in the health department. Well, it was interesting to learn that the article that he was reading was written by Rui Tushera, who is yeah. the co-editor of the Liberal Patriot and John Judas, and, and their final paragraph was. Liberal political scientists and many Democratic officials seem determined to ignore class divisions and instead divide the country up by race and ethnicity. This practice, mm -hmm. which is unpopular outside elite media, universities and nonprofits, contributed to the rise of Mr. Trump. If it continues, Democrats could pay a lasting political price, which could threaten the welfare of groups Democrats want to help, which, again, you, you made the distinction here. But that it is mm. kind of interesting how they say, hey, this could backfire. It could be exploited by Trump. And there is Trump actually using it. Uh, yeah. Okay, okay. So, Josh, I've, we've been talking about your newsletter, which which deals with public policy all the time. Your Your most recent one I thought was very interesting. Let me tell you about the day in Paris I decided to get married. And yeah. that, that was a, kind of a nice piece, but it was also a response to a very strange piece in the New York Times by a woman who described about how much she hated her husband. <laughs> yeah. Just, people, what? You know, not everybody hates their spouse, right? No, I, I don't hate my spouse. Um, I, I love I love I love my husband. Um, and not only I mean, and, and Heather Haverleski describes she loves her husband in addition to hating him. I, I not only love my husband, I, I don't hate him. Um, and I but there's been a spate of these pieces. Some of them are divorce essays, including one in The Atlantic that described a, a woman 
sort of getting a divorce for for reasons that were were very unclear. And the headline of the piece is something like "How I Demolished My Life," and then this one in in the New York Times is 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 "I Hate My Husband," and it sort of sounds like it's going to be sort of like an oh you know loving ribbing thing, but then it's just like five thousand words of grievances about you know he makes all these bad noises, and when we go on <laughs> vacation, he like he yells back at the kids when they yell, and it's all too loud, and I have to plan the whole vacation, and he looks to me like a giant pile of stinking laundry and all of this stuff, and it's just you know. <laughs> Thing, things that, you know, I, I, I mean, one half joke that I make in the piece is because, you know, it's like straight people can write in the newspaper that they hate their husbands and not be afraid that that makes it sound like they don't deserve rights. Like, you know, since you know, gay people like me have only had equal marriage for a certain number of years, it's like maybe we'd better show that we're good stewards of this thing. And so like, you know, sometimes the pressures of respectability politics can actually push you in a good, dignified direction by not airing your, your marital grievances in the paper. But I've just I, I found these these very strange because it's you know obviously some people do need to get divorced and even if they don't some people they their their marriage is a slog in one way or another um, but it's also it, it's perfectly normal to have a marriage that is happy in a sort of uncomplicated way um, a lot of people you know take great pleasure in seeing their spouse every day and don't have to you know figure out how to manage through a bunch of imp- interpersonal conflicts in order to do it and so I you know I, I didn't. I wasn't saying that really to brag, although I guess it is bragging. Um, but um, I think it's, I, I, in general, not just on marriage, there's there's sort of this negativity bias in all sorts of writing. Sometimes, you know, obviously problems are more interesting than things that, that are not problems. Um, and so in business coverage or anything else, obviously you're going to bias toward writing about things that are going wrong. But I just, you know, I sort of wanted to, to note, I wanted to tell a nice story, but I also wanted to note uh, that uh, it's, it's it's okay to be to be happy and to to not hate your husband and to know that that is, that is actually a pretty normal thing. It's a nice break. Uh, Josh Barrow is the author of the very serious newsletter on Substack. You can subscribe and the host of the new very serious podcast, because, Josh, this is what America needs. We need another podcast and another newsletter, right? Yes, that's, absolutely. That's I know that. Well, I mean, you know, I was talking about the supply chain and how people are buying so many goods um, and that's creating a lot of pressure. I'm just trying to hand out another service that people can pay for. Um, so that maybe they don't buy another thing that's imported from China and clog up the port in, in, in L.A. You can instead send the money to me, and uh, I promise no supply chain impacts from that whatsoever. It is a public service. Josh, thank you so much for coming on the, the podcast <laughs> thank you, today. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.